Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trun Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com slash books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org slash sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurized.org slash store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future before you do anything else make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future please also leave a positive review on itunes thanks so much let's be ted welcome how are you i'm fine thanks it's great to have you on the show ted um you are a very accomplished researcher in uh, the field of climate so i wanted to go through uh some of the experiences that got you there um math and physics back in university of toronto uh but then you got yourself a phd on uh, what's called planetary waves um at mit so I wanted maybe, uh, you know, in a second for you to explain what that's all about, because intuitively it seems very um, easy. It's a metaphor, planet, uh, you know, planetary waves. Uh, now you are a professor at University of Reading in the UK. Um, you are an expert on climate modeling with a focus on atmospheric circulation, uh, which I guess is no surprise from the PhD. Uh, but you've been a lead author on various, uh, you know, climate panel reports and uh, the Meteorological Society. Uh, you're also an expert on Bayesian statistics. But uh, I think what we're talking about here is climate storylines, which is something somewhat different. Uh, and I'd love to uh, to get into that in a second. But why don't we talk about uh, first, you know, just your PhD on planetary waves. It's a very, very interesting principle. I think about it and don't understand it every time I cross, you know, from the east to the west in the US and people tell me, hey, you're on the jet stream. And for some reason, it goes much faster, you know, going west to east. What, what are planetary waves uh, in a very simple 
simple okay. explanation. Well, I'll just start with waves. I guess the simplest example of a wave that we think of is waves on on water, on a lake, or on ocean. And a wave is is a general phenomenon that that you get in a fluid system. And the, um, air is also a fluid, a, a gas, it's, um, as well as water. And so, in the case of a water wave, you have uh, gr gravity, which is pushing downward, and then the the, the that there's always a restoring force pushing back, which is the pressure of the whole system. It's it's a resistance. And so gravity waves are just the, the, the surface gravity waves for water are just uh, oscillations back and forth. And as the as, as the water moves up, it wants to move back down again. You have an equilibrium position, which would be uh, still water. And if you push it down, it bounces back up. And if you pull it up, it bounces back down. So every system has these wave properties, and planter waves are a special case of waves. They're actually known as Rossby waves, is the, tip, is the, is the technical term after a meteorologist Rossby. And they're a property that you find on any, any rotating um, um, planet. So it requires rotation, and it requires a spherical geometry. So I don't want to get too technical, but they, the, 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 the restoring force here has to do with the spin of a fluid. So just as you, um, the waves always, you involve, um, uh, as you move, you just imagine moving the fluid in one direction and asking uh, whether it gets pushed back or not, and that'll create a wave, this restoring force. And in the atmosphere, we have a spin, and um, it's a spin about the, of course, the axis of rotation is between the North and South Pole. And what's important is the, is the orientation of that axis of rotation, which is the spin, and the local vertical. So if you're sitting at the North Pole, it's, it's exactly vertical. But if you're on the equator, and it's at right angle. So you've got no spin at the equator. And it's this contrast between the low latitudes, which have no, no spin or very low spin, and the high latitudes, which have high spin. So as you move a parcel northward or southward, it, it gets pushed back by this spin. So it's it's called vorticity, technically, which is uh, a circulation. But it's got the same kind of you know properties as any sort of wave if that helps but these are these are massive waves right and mm -hmm. they interact with other phenomena so for example i grew up in norway and i am used to the gulf stream but i'm mm -hmm. un, you know i am to understand that the gulf stream in principle is a completely different system although it it does get it has intersect waves too. yeah it, it has waves too but it does intersect with these waves and these are i mean the waves mm -hmm. you're talking about here right they are massive they're not just yeah, yeah. these are not right. some waves on on a, on a beach they're they're no, these massive right. systems right yeah yes and the motions are sideways so uh in in some sense they it's basically the the mo motion in the air and the ocean tends to be horizontal the vertical motion tends to be weak at least on the large scale so they're essentially sideways waves but it's the same principle there if you look at the gulf stream in a picture it's got these meanders, and those are Rossby waves too. The difference is planetary wave is re referring, as the name implies, to the planetary scale waves, which tend to be very slow moving. Uh, the Rossby waves, which are um, more like a few thousand kilometers scale, are faster moving, and they're also responsible for the weather systems. So, um, yeah, there's a whole uh, spectrum, but they're all basically Rossby waves. But as they get bigger, they get they get they get slower.
Yeah, so just one more thing on that. So in California, they are very concerned about El Nino and La Nina. And currently there's apparently this La Nina pattern, which uh, creates a somewhat colder cycle. Uh, so so those are all related to the, to this weather system we're talking about this here. This is all planetary. Yeah, so the uh, El Nino patterns um, basically uh, f- um, provide a perturbation, which forces these Rossby waves. And these are uh, they're th- steady, basically, time, time average. So you get these various um, patterns that will affect uh, a region for a whole a whole season and mm. depending on where you are in the phase of the wave it may be warmer or colder temperatures mm. well we'll get to how this matters or, or not to climate storylines in, in a second but before that I just wasn't covered you, you shared with me that you you're also a little bit of a musician and you know in the olden days you you played the oboe and you even thought about going into music but now you've you've turned it more into a kind of choir singing and other things. And I'm sure you enjoy music on your spare time. What is this uh, uh, relationship, do you think, between analytics and music? Is it is uh, it just I a contrast? Know. Well, I guess it's sort of a re- somewhat regularity. I mean, people talk about the motions of, uh, uh, of the planets. And actually, it turns out the planetary orbits, um, the periods form the... Uh, and intervals like in music the third or fourth or fifth so there it's because of resonances so there's something about um the universe which wants to resonate at certain frequencies so so maybe that's it hmm. um uh, but there's also you know you this is a rather obscure kind of music but uh, some of the singing i used to do is called gregorian chant and that's actually a very good example of chaos because you can predict a few notes in advance it isn't just random, but you can't predict 10 or 20 notes in advance. So it's a bit like the weather. It follows patterns, but they get unpredictable over a long time. So there's a lot of analogs, I think, between music, um, which has a certain pattern, a certain regularity, but isn't perfectly re- regular because it would be boring if it was. Hmm. Let's jump to uh, climate storylines for a second, because this is something that you have recently uh, gotten involved with as a concept. And yeah, I think you attended a, a conference and you guys, uh, you know, uh, came up with this concept. It is somewhat controversial and it's a, a concept, uh, I guess, intended to communicate science better, which I'm a big believer in. Um, what is the concept of storylines and what are you reacting to? What what came before storylines? I am to understand that it is slightly related to this idea of, uh, you know, how you explain science at the fundamental level. Can you el- line up the kind of the counterpoint that you were setting up here between storylines and, and other types of approaches? Yeah. So I guess you could say that um, the what I was what this is, and it's not just me. I mean, the the, the idea has been around for a long time in in, in various ways. But this workshop that you refer to, we pulled together the, the this concept and and saw that it was being used in a variety of ways and tried to generalize it. Um, it's a reaction to. Um, I guess you could say attempts to be probabilistic, where you where you try to give some uh, you know um, central value with some error bar and stuff like that, which is the sort of a t- tendency that in a lot of science people want to be they, they they say quantitative, and what they mean by quantitative is an error bar, you know, some estimate with some uh, uncertainty. Everybody wants uh, uh, uncertainties. Well, there are systems where you can have. High, high degrees of uncertainties that are very quantifiable. I mean, I, I think uh, casinos uh, uh, understand very well what, what what the margin is, and they can make money 
reliably because they they know the uncertainties. Insurance companies obviously deal with it, uh, this too. But when you're dealing with with climate change, there's a lot of uncertainties that we can't quantify. And fundamentally, the problem is that we have one planet Earth. So all of the statistics that is done or the the classic methods are all based on the idea of some population. So we would have to imagine a population of different Earths that somehow had evolved in different ways. Well, what, what does that even mean? We're on only on one on one planet Earth. So you know, I mean, if if I give a maybe a, a, a prosaic, a, a, well, I shouldn't say prosaic, a, a co- concrete example. When when NASA sent Apollo eleven to the moon, they must have had a, they must have estimated what is the likelihood that these astronauts come back alive. Right. Now that's not. A probability that you can do a whole sequence of runs. There's only one shot. There's one Apollo 11 mission. They have to uh, estimate this, but this is not a frequency. This this is not how often it happens out of some hypothetical universe of Apollo 11 shots, right? So this is what's called Bayesian statistics. So there, that's how you would ha- have to deal with that kind of problem. But that's it's it's very difficult, and most people don't really um, know how to use it properly. So I think what the it's a reaction against the uh, more blind or it's called frequentist kind of uh, approaches where you imagine probability is just something like like roll of the dice. So it's a reaction against that because a lot of the uh, uh, there are uncertainties in climate change that are difficult to quantify. So what you do in that case, but you there is physical understanding. And actually, if you read IPCC r- reports, for uh, for example, it's clear that the physical uh, understanding is absolutely crucial. All the arguments that are made about global warming. It's not made based on statistics. It's based on physics. And so mm-hmm. uh, climate scientists have a good understanding of, of cause and effect. And storylines are, are ways of building in cause-effect relationships. Um, you know, chains of uh, uh, sequences of events that can lead to certain impacts. You can call it a scenario. That's another, another way to think about it, except scenario has another meaning in our business. But um, the, this idea is, is sometimes called scenario thinking. So it's, it's it. trying to appeal to the physical knowledge. Yeah. So uh, so l- l- let's hone in on the on the storyline concept for a second. I, w- I do want to get back to these IPCC, the climate scenarios, and, and the modeling you used there. But so so storyline. I think uh, in one of your articles, it was defined as a physically self consistent unfolding of past events or of plausible future events. So it's both related mm-hmm. to modeling the past and modeling the future yep. uh, with causal elements. So it's not mm-hmm. like this is the departure. I mean, storyline for some people means complete narrative as in like complete okay. yeah. liberal freedom. But you know, what you're talking about here is still a storyline within a very distinct causal structure. Yeah, That's what I, I mean, am to understand. Language, of course, has many meanings. And, you know, we um, climate scientists use, we, we, we talk about c- constructing climate information, which we use the term quite casually. But I, I ran into somebody from a social science background, and they say it's not a construction because I guess in that, in his community that he was trained in, co- a construction just means something artificial. So you know, it, it, words can have different different uh, interpretations for for different audiences, and certainly, storyline is 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 absolutely intended to be a cause and effect relationship. But it's not predictive in the sense that you can't say what's going to happen. You can say what might happen, and you right. try to say you know if this then that. It's a conditional statement. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's let's go to some examples before we go deeper here on these storylines uh, uh, and, and how they relate to to, to other uh, approaches. So, if you take this Arctic ecosystem collapse from a storm surge, this was a particular mm-hmm. example that you cited in the literature. 
uh, I believe it's Pisaric uh, in 2011, who were talking, they were talking about this. Can you talk me through this example? So here we have the Arctic and we, uh, I guess we have all uh, read about this melting of, of the ice around the Arctic. And, you know, it's of concern to most people. What, what is the storyline part of, of, of this uh, example? Okay, right. So the, this uh, the study was done by by ecosystem scientists who are field field workers, field scientists, and they and they had studied this ecosystem, and it had been a freshwater ecosystem close to the shore uh, on the Arctic coast in Canada, and they knew it would be in freshwater because there are lake sediments, and they could drill down, and they could show that over a thousand years it had been. Um, in this stable freshwater state, but then a storm surge came and 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 inundated it with salt water. Um, and after ten years, it was still salt water, and it was essentially irreversible. So you have um, for that ecosystem, it's essentially a tipping point. You go from a freshwater system to a saltwater system. So what caused it? It's it, it's a storm surge, but. Normally, there would not be a storm surge because there would be ice there. So you um, and uh, but the ice had melted. So you have a combination of reduced sea ice cover, which exposed the water, and then a storm. So there's there's two causal elements there. Now the you so for sea ice, it's pretty straightforward. We have a strong uh, understanding that the retreat of sea ice in the Arctic has been driven by climate change. There's a little bit of variability around it, of course, but it's clearly an anthropogenic effect, and this has been well attributed. Storm Storms are a random event. Um, there are some arguments that uh, storms are getting worse in the Arctic, and Pacific actually claimed that, although I don't believe they really showed any evidence. Um, when we wrote about it, we just said, well, let's not let's not assume that the storm was increased because of climate change, because we don't necessarily have evidence, and we don't need to assume that. We can just regard the storm a, a, as a chance event, chaos in the system, but you have this chance event on top of the long-term change. So the narrative is then of long-term change. You could have potentially other causal elements. I mean, sometimes there's coastal erosion, uh, other things. Um, sometimes uh, a storm surge is caused by the, the tide being very high. So in Pasaric, they actually talk about all these different potential factors and they isolate it down to just to just a few so that's the idea you talk about all the possible explanations and you look at the evidence that you got and you try to identify um, which of them were actually important but you don't have to necessarily attribute you don't have to decide on this whether the storm was made more intense by climate change or not because it's not actually necessary if if you were worried about other coastal regions and future risk you might think about that but it's not essential you can leave that open so part of the story line approach is leaving certain things open that other readers might bring more to the table in fact there was a recent uh paper um published by a, a colleague of mine uh, uh, and uh, and his wife the clim- colleagues of climate scientist his, his wife is a, a professor of of english and they argued that the part of the six, uh, power of Shakespeare's plays is that he doesn't specify everything. He leaves certain things open for the director or the audience to 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 interpret. And they argue that actually a key part of storytelling is leaving certain things open. And that's not uh, uh, artificial in science because we often don't know everything and we should <laughs> leave things open. That's interesting. Um, I guess what they're referring to, uh, there's a literary uh, critic called uh, Walter Iser, I believe, and it's a reader response theory is the, is the literary criticism uh, theory behind that. And so basically the idea is you leave holes yeah, in the, in the text, you leave holes in the narrative for the reader to fill out. 
and that creative space that gets created is is part of the narrative uh you know uh, the uh, effic- efficiency of the narrative um tell me more about this so uh, you know when, when you start to write in a more narrative tradition um what does social and other sciences and even natural scientists, what do they think about this? Because uh, when we were talking earlier, you, you explained to me that in, in your field, physicists have kind of approached looking at nature almost from kind of two, two sides. One is, I guess, more the natural history side. And then, well, actually perhaps three. And then you had the statistical paradigm that came in and, and has kind of had multiple um, versions. How do you see these different strands and how do they, uh, I, I guess, come after each other when, when, you know, when you, uh, step up and, and, and sort of bring out a, a kind of a, a, a new paradigm, like a storyline, how, how does that, yeah. uh, how well, does that work in the, you know, in the academic structure? Yeah. So I think the, uh, physicists, I think, are, and I was trained as a physicist, uh, I think are trained to, um, I mean, the term might be spatiotemporally invariant laws, uh, 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 of nature. You're looking for laws that hold everywhere. Of course, they'll be modified depending on where you go. If you go to a different planet, the gravity is different, but the idea is you have the same laws and you and you can apply them anywhere. So you make very general predictions, um, uh, but that doesn't um, st- that that starts to fail you under climate change. Well, if there's if there's uncertainties uh, as there are, especially at, at the local scale, to do with all kinds of of things, either the physics that we can't quite quantify or understand, or even just uh, d- details like like a city or some landscape. Um, social scientists uh, sometimes don't get the point because they say, well, of course, it's all a storyline. Um, so one of the problems I've had, you could say, is that uh, some of the reaction from social sciences, what's the big deal? We, we, we know everything is a storyline. But I think they don't quite appreciate how much this um, this uh, general approach and um, aggregated approach that physicists use is really mainstream. And so for physicists, it, it is it is rather radical. But then, of course, there are um, sciences that are more uh, historical, like natural history, evolution, and so on. I mean, the, the way that the continents have formed out, we couldn't have predicted that a priori. It's all explainable from physical principles, but there's a there's a chaotic part to it. And so a lot of our, our the world as we have it is, um, is contingent on the thing, on the uh, sequence of events that happen. So that's what a storyline is. It's building in... Co- contingencies and they may be contingencies of the past or they may be contingencies of the future that we don't know that's the idea mm-hmm. um so i but it, in fact the term i at this workshop or i guess it was an earlier workshop actually a colleague of mine uh, she's an atmospheric scientist but she told me about the word storyline which she said uh, hydrologists use to talk about uh, drought and flood and so on so i think it just depends on the community but there definitely are a lot of um the more re- lo- locally focused sciences, for, the, for them, it's a very natural approach because it's clear that a- every landscape will have a different manifestation uh, of the laws. Well, that, that's that's super interesting. So then, um, w- what if we go to storylines about the plausible future? Because that's something, well, certainly on this podcast, we explore the future. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because in climate science, uh, or and certainly in the popular imagination of it and with journalism, there's this notion now of tipping points, which everyone finds pretty fascinating and scary because, you know, here it, it, it somehow gets real in a, you know, in, <laughs> there's drama because the tipping point, right, is chaos. And, and it's, it's where you kind of lose control, but also where the paradigm 
perhaps fails. Um, and whether you're talking about Gulfstream collapse, which in, you know, for my Norwegian friends would, uh, I think be uh, a bit of a calamity uh, or, or general ocean warming, which of course is worrisome. And there's sort of eight to 10 of these tipping points are now really high on the, in the public mind. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a bit of a thing. How do you explain tipping points? And you were telling me earlier that tipping points are almost the opposite of a wave. Uh, so maybe yeah. you can start there. Okay, if you start almost any physical system, when you write the the equations down, um, you, you say that the rate of change of some quantity is proportional to the quantity itself. And, of course, there's other couplings with other parts of the system, and it's either a positive feedback or a negative feedback. And a wave is a negative feedback. It's It's got a restoring force, so if you push the, uh, the water up, it comes back down again, and so on. <coughs> so a tipping point is an instability, and an instability is just a positive feedback. So as I say, it's, uh, if you start to look at equations in physics, that or in fluid mechanics, um, basically you you get these two classes of behavior: I- I- instabilities and and waves. Now, a lot of instabilities will, <coughs> I'm sorry, will will essentially um, saturate at a fairly small scale. So the weather systems that we have are instabilities of Rossby waves, and they lead to um, cyclones and uh, anticyclones. But they only have a finite size; they only last so long. They go away, and you can average over the things. The problem with, uh, I guess, the difference with a tipping point is it doesn't it doesn't saturate, and it will lead to various chain reactions, um, and the whole system moves into a completely different state. And this is why it's such a different paradigm, because when we think about climate change, most uh, in the atmosphere anyway, we, we think about averaging over a period of time. I mean, the kind of canonical period people use is 30 years that's for historical reasons so you're you're not talking about a 30-year average you talk well you're talking about all the um you know statistics of all the storms and stuff like that but you you have this idea that climate will be an average over all these different events that you have it's an average of all the weather systems but in a tipping point i guess it might average out over millions of years but certainly on a on a human or even yeah on a human lifetime even a civilization lifetime, it doesn't average out. So you're basically sent on one pathway. It's called a bifurcation in in mathematics, but um, you don't. It's not a spatial. You you can't uh, average over everything that, that that's possible. You get stuck in a certain state. So it's a combination of this instability and then irreversibility that is the um, the hallmark uh, of a tipping point. Well, the way you explain it here, it doesn't sound uh, terribly easy to do uh, science on a tipping point, or at least um, predicting. Well, there are, yeah, there are simple systems like some of the ones that you talked about. Of course, the, well, one of the reasons that we believe in tipping points is we can see them in the paleoclimate record, and there's definitely very strong, you know, very clear evidence of these oscillations that have nothing to do with any known forcing, like like orbital forcings. They have internal time scales. Um, and there, and there are these uh, oscillations that can um, change the whole climate for for ha, 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 hundreds of years, at least in a certain region, like like the North North Atlantic is a classic of that because the Greenland ice core has told us all kinds of things about this, and um, uh, a lot of scientists do have rather simple um, mathematical models of these kinds of behavior to do with the ocean circulation. Um, uh, I, when I say simple, they're just idealized to a few basic uh, feedback processes. So the fact that you get 
this kind of behavior is actually not surprising at all. If you um, study what's called nonlinear physics, and uh, you know this just arises in all kinds of systems, um, it's actually um, more the the rule rather than the that. Than the exception, um, it's more difficult if you talk about things like ice sheet collapse because that involves a lot of detailed processes. And as far as I'm aware, there aren't really accepted general models of those properties. But for the ocean, it's um, you know the the possibility is not at all surprising, and people have been working on this for for decades, at least in the theoretical models. All right. So um, lots of issues here, ocean warming, ice uh, sheet collapse. Uh, let's uh, uh, stop a little bit uh, around these IPCC scenarios because uh, I, I, I just want to be honest. I have read some of that work. I respect it. There's a Nobel Prize involved. We all know that, uh, you know, the future of the planet is in, uh, you know, is in uh, the mix here. And there is a notion of storylines in there. There are also some socioeconomic scenarios. There's certainly the mm -hmm. word scenarios appears many times. And I'm a, a bit of a scenario expert in, in you know, futurist tradition, but I have mm -hmm. to say I get lost in these scenarios. It's very complicated. I find them hard to read. And um, so I'd like you to just explain what, how, how did all these things get constructed in the in the way that they are and and what is it that an ipcc kind of scientists sees you know where is the value in in sort of writing such a complicated set of documents to to describe obviously you know it's a complicated process maybe yeah, the answer yeah, is yeah. just that well i'm not an expert in the um what's so they uh in ipcc there's a fairly clear d distinction between what would be called the um um, well, it's now called a shared socioeconomic pathway, but uh, SSP. Mm -hmm. But it's 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 a scenario of the how the world's going to unfold. You know, do we all cooperate? Are we at war with each other? Is are we going to burn f fossil fuels forever? Are we going to move to a green economy? So it's got these various, you could say, um, visions of what the future might be. Um, some of them are di dystopian, and some are utopian they are and they have a storyline behind them they use that word uh what they mean again is self-consistent so you don't you know you don't assume that we're all going to be environmentalists and a war with each other those don't seem like things that go 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 together so there's a self-consistency in in the worlds that are that are that are uh, imagined and then um uh sorry can you i'm getting a alert but maybe it's still okay yeah. yeah, no no worries. There are some alerts no. here and there. Um, right. I just, if my connection, it seems to be fine. Okay, sorry. So, yeah, so in, in um, you, you imagine a, a, a scenario, well, you, so a, a storyline is, is a narrative of a future world, which is, has, is supposed to be um, self-consistent. <clears throat> and then people quantify what they call a scenario then is what that actually means in terms of you know, population and things like that. It goes back to, you know, there's the famous study of the limits to growth in, in the seventies where you can develop a system model and you try to, you know, map out how these things might unfold. They're not predictions. They're just possible scenarios. Um, a criticism of it is that they're very global. You know, they assume the world all behaves the same way, which is not very realistic. But anyway, um, that's what it is. Now, you might argue, why do we have it so complicated? I don't really quite know. I guess, you know, everybody in any particular field 
people will say that I'm trying to make atmospheric dynamics too complicated. And uh, I'll say that, you know, you, you always find that so someone else's work is too complicated and your own is uh, oversimplified. That's just the way we think, I think. Um, I do think there is a sense to try to make it maybe overly rigorous. And that's where a lot, lot of the quantification comes in. And so there's a lot of... Um, work on fine-tuning uh, overshoot and all these things i don't know i mean i i i don't get too uh, personally motivated by that because it seems to me that we aren't going to tune climate that's not how things are working but that's just my my own view um <clears throat> but for example a, w a way to simplify things is rather than it which which um the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, has done in the in the Paris Agreement. It talked about two degree worlds, one and a half degree worlds. That really simplifies things. So rather than imagining a certain pathway, you just say, "What is it going to be like if we're in a, a two degree world?" And then you can imagine different, um, you know, different populations, different structures, and you're free to imagine that maybe, uh, you know, Europe goes one way and. Uh, you know, U.S. goes another way, which is certainly possible. Um, so it gives you a lot of freedom. So I think it could be a lot simpler, actually. And I don't quite understand. I, I think there's just a feeling we want to put error bars and everything. So when you look at these uh, IPCC re re reports, they're they're trying to be very quantitative. But ultimately, uh, there's there's a lot of uncertainties, and I think we would do better if we just um, had simpler storylines that are physically self-consistent, uh, and then people can create their own storylines at, at at a local scale. Because you know what happens in a certain re region uh, could could be, go in a different a direction than the overall uh, world. I mean, we're all in the same climate, but in terms of the social conditions, though, that could be very very different. Yeah. But I think, you know, partly it's just human nature. The IPCC reports have just been getting longer and longer and longer. I mean, a colleague of mine plotted the number of pages, and it was just a linear. Um, I th We definitely need I I IPCC, but I'm not sure that we need it to be quite so big. And I think I would wish that we, we could still have, um, you know, uh, uh, global statements that are endorsed by the UN, but I think we should put a more effort maybe at the national or regional or, or local scale. Mm -hmm. um, we, we talked about the ice sheet collapse a moment ago, and you said, uh, well, that is one tipping point that perhaps has uh, uh, had a different sort of set of data uh, connected with it. And, the, and that's because the, the way that you would measure this is more in the natural history type of things. They're, they're more like point um, measurements of, of the ice itself or not. Is, no, is I, that think, I think... I I think I may I could I could get something wrong and I um uh, for forgive me if, if I do but we as I said we do have quite good records of the manifestations of the um of these oscillations in the in the in the ocean from combinations of ice 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 um cores over over land that give you the uh, the, the time series of various climate pr um, proxies and things, as well as the sediments in the ocean. When it comes to ice sheets, though, it's uh, the record that's important is what's happening between the ice and the land. And, of course, the ice is eroding that at the same time. So I don't think there's long-term records of the process itself. So, um, you know, scientists are making um, field measurements each season trying to see how things are happening. So that's a case where the process is at quite small scales, maybe, you know, hundreds of meters 
are actually de determining what's happening on a thousands uh, of kilometer scale, um, which is a bit <laughs> scary too in terms of you know our ability to actually quantify that. Mm -hmm. So, but they they all begin. With, they there are f physical models. I shouldn't. I, I don't mean to imply that they aren't. But but um, how to make them really quantitative to apply to the whole, to the system as a whole is challenging. There is a lot of work on this, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, it's just instabilities that lead to systems getting out of control. Hmm. You uh, told me earlier, which I really uh, am reflecting on, that you're actually a bit more worried about the social tipping points than about the physical tipping points. Can you explain that a bit? Well, I guess, and I, yeah, I'm certainly no expert on the social side, but just my 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 interest is at the local scale of climate change, and at at the local scale, you're dealing with with droughts and uh, potentially food food security problems and migration problems and stuff like that. Um, areas becoming uh, uh, unlivable because of sea level rise. So, it, um, and it's easy to see that uh, just. That societies are actually somewhat fragile. I think we saw that, you know, in well, it's it, COVID has mixed lessons in some respects. The society societies were rather resilient, like um, like uh, uh, supply chains for food, for example. Um, once all once all the toilet paper had been brought back in, um, but on the other hand, other things are not, and and uh, so. Um, uh, there are these ca cascading uh, impacts that you can have with the global supply chains, you know, with ships getting um, caught, uh, not, not being able to unload and this sort of thing. There's, of course, financial. I mean, Britain just had this huge hole in the budget. That the government didn't even do anything. They just said they would do something. And all of a sudden, uh, Britain has been set maybe f five years back in terms of its, its, its economic planning. So there's these huge shocks that can happen either through finance or through, or through food or, or, uh, you know, um, all these, all these chains, uh, that, that, that happen around the world. So that's what I'm, I'm just, you know, the, the kind of tipping points that physically the people are looking at are, um, you know, a hundred years or more off. In fact, for sea level rise, even if the ice sheets on Antarctica or Greenland start to collapse, we're talking about, um, you know, not for a few hundred years though, to really get, uh, serious amounts of sea level rise. Um, but I think within you know decades uh, we could have a lot of social problems because it's not just climate change, of course. It's all sorts of other uh, biodiversity and other things. Um, so, and of course, the world's getting the gap between rich and poor is is growing, um, and that's going to lead to some sort of a crisis, I'm sure. And of course, climate change just aggravates that as well. Um, so I think that's why it's partly because I'm uh, I'm interested in the local rather than the global scale. That's just my own my own my own scientific interest, but also at the local scale, you very much get into these um, social contexts. And I think um, um, society doesn't seem very very stabilizing to me at the moment. So it's a bit of a worry um, how all this might go. Well, uh, so let's talk about the, the the future a bit. You know, what what do you think is is likely to happen? I mean, there's two questions I have for you. I mean, one is more narrow, and it's uh, you know we've been talking about storylines and to what degree they are incorporated in in the scientific modeling of the future in your field, in climate science generally, or or in other fields. Um, first, let, let's handle that narrow question first. I mean, are you confident that the response which seems you know significant to your to your work mm. there do you think that there's a new thrust of researchers that are starting to think more consciously about 
the fact that what they should be doing perhaps, uh, you know, has to at least resemble somewhat of a story and that there's a point there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so what, I, what has the response been? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the, one of the, um, uh, pieces of evidence that I use for that is in the last IPCC report, the, um, the sixth assessment report, there's a, a discussion of storylines and there's a box on it and there's a glossary term. And actually it's been a very helpful concept for the, for the, uh, for the IPCC because, um, there was a tendency to focus on what was likely to happen. And a lot of statements about this will happen, this will happen with big uncertainties, but the governments wanted treatment. It is meant to serve governments after all, and the governments wanted treatment of what they would call low likelihood, high impact events, including tipping points. So you can't talk about tipping points without a storyline. So actually it, it was already being used. People were talking about sea level rise. They would talk about uh, high level sea, lo sea level rise uh, uh, scenarios. And these are actually storylines too. So it works at both for the global scale and for the local scale. Um, and so it's growing. I just see more and more uh, uh, interest. Um, I mean, I work with even, um, you know, some private sector with water uh, company in England and like that, and they 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 because um, they're concerned about drought. It's very hard to put probabilities in drought because every drought is a bit different. They don't. Re it's hard to characterize them with a, a single number. You have to take a more of a, a of a narrative approach. And so I can just see in, in many ways it is becoming um, a really accepted approach. And what I'm trying to do actually at the moment is bridge back to to the probabilities a little bit more. And that's where the Bayesian thing, which I won't I won't get into, but um, it does provide a bridge because. Bayesian um, reasoning is all about hypotheses, and uh, a scientific hypothesis is actually uh, a storyline. So you can connect the statistics and the physics through this kind of reasoning, and I think that makes people more more comfortable. So you can't just it would it would be confusing if people started talking about storylines and then they open IPCC and they just get probabilities and they can't connect them. So it's important to bridge them to show how they connect. So you can use some probabilities as a broader context and then use the storylines to really um, be, be much more specific. So I, th I think it's really catching on. And um, I mean, I, I guess I'm doing, trying to build the, um, the, uh, the proper, um, you could call it epistemological fa foundation for it, which is why I'm also working with philosophers uh, uh, of science to try to make clear that it's, it's a respectable scientific practice. Yeah, but certainly uh, a lot of people really respond to it for sure. Well, people, uh, if you find yourself in a story, right, you can put yourself in a story or you can put people you care about in a story so that it, it contextualizes it quite a bit. Um, what about where we are all heading with this? I mean, what are some plausible storylines that are making sense to you? You, you said you're worried about the future. Um, First of all, you seem worried, not just on the environmental side, there are these social tipping points. It's hard to study cascades though, because if you, if you accept that, well, one thing is tipping points, right? They are uh, big, big events potentially, uh, but cascading effects that cross domains right, from, over from climate to economics or climate to social or health impact or local impact, like you said, I mean, clearly there's, uh, there's a lot to be done there to describe these local impacts. Uh, and I think we see it now at the climate meeting, right? You have representatives of the global South and, you know, if you are an island these days, you know, that's not a good place to be. Um, you're, you know, you're, you're seeing more extreme climate for one reason or another, and you're trying to get some help with that. 
Um, but either way, it's complicated. Uh, but where are we headed? I, I mean, are you seeing some sort of consorted uh, direction here? Are we moving in a good direction, uh, bad direction? Well, I think, yeah. I, I mean, I guess I wouldn't want to um, give too simple uh, an answer to that. I think I think that the uh, the issues are very linked, though, because I think if we can um, start to get our act together as a society. And for me, that means um, narrowing rather than widening the bridge, the gap between rich and poor and recognizing that we have to help each other ultimately and, you know, not, not, not be um, so polarized. Then I think it's clear that we can deal, deal with climate change, but if we can't get our act together, then we won't deal with climate change. So I think they're actually not really separable um, uh, 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 things, um, or if we do, if we do deal with climate change, we'll do it in in a way that just exacerbates the gap between rich and poor, and actually isn't necessarily this. Maybe in a broader sense, it's better for for humanity. I'm not sure, but but I'm I'm, I'm more worried about the fact that actually, uh, yeah, that we. So I guess my for me the, um, I mean, I don't I I I'm not thinking that we'd ever wind up a, a, in an eight degree world, but I could imagine that we wind up in a four degree world with huge inequity uh, between rich and poor. And that would just be, you know, awful. Um, but I think there is, uh, let's hope that there can be, um, can be a, a, a transformation. And obviously it's not, it, it, um, it does require changing priorities somehow. Um, but that can happen at the local, it begins at the local scale. I know that people are trying to put pressure on, uh, well, there's various methods, obviously, and, and ultimately it comes to influencing governments and policies and taking a, a long-term view. So I guess it seems like a, a cliche, but the problem is the long-term versus short-term, isn't, isn't it? But that's, I guess, one of the um, um, benefits of Storylines uh, approaches is that it does help people make sense of their local situation. And then they can begin to see some optimism as well, how they can start to do things in their own environment um, that will make make the environment better for, for themselves and get a sense of agency. Because I think that's my, the sense I get is that one of the problems is that people feel that they don't have any agency. Um, um, related to that, well, how do you see the notion of growth? What is growth for you? Well, that's a good question because everyone says that we need growth. Uh, but um, I, I was influenced by, uh, by uh, uh, Schumacher's Sm Small is Beautiful, another book from, from the 70s. Um, and uh, Schumacher talks about growth, but it's growth of well-being. It's not G GDP. And Schumacher's point is that what we need to grow is we need to grow in education and health and and you know well-being, and we're measuring the wrong the wrong indicators. So I think for me that's one of the one of the problems is that we seem to be measuring growth by uh, things like GDP, and it's very very clear that GDP is not a good measure of well-being. I mean, many people have shown that you get gaps between rich and poor. You get a very skewed income distribution. Um, it measures. Um, things that aren't actually helping anybody. So yeah. growth should be well-being. And there are various measures of that, of course. Hmm. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized Podcast with me, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. 
If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org store where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.